You're listening to the podcast When Life Gives You Lemons, presented by me, Emma Levy. Having worked with elite athletes for most of my career, it's always intrigued me that a significant number of high-performing individuals have encountered some form of adversity earlier in their lifetime. My fascination into this grew when I had my own brush with adversity. When I was diagnosed with breast cancer in May 2020, in the midst of the global pandemic at the age of 36. During this period, I questioned whether it was my positive mindset or maybe something deeper, which enabled me to bounce back and to train and compete for a triathlon just one month following completion of all active cancer treatment. The goal of this podcast is to explore this concept further by meeting a variety of high-performing individuals who have experienced adversity, but who have come back stronger. Today, I'm welcoming Dr. Philippa Kay to the podcast. Dr. Philippa is a GP, best-selling author and journalist. Philippa is often seen on ITV's This Morning and various other TV and radio programmes, sharing her medical wisdom in a straightforward and easy-to-understand manner, whilst often dispelling medical myths. She has a particular interest in children's, women's and sexual health, having written multiple books on these topics, including Breasts, An Owner's Guide, The M-Word, Everything You Need to Know About the Menopause, and Doctors Get Cancer Too. This is her honest memoir where she shares her journey of being diagnosed with bowel cancer, revealing how it actually feels to be sat on the other side of the desk and to be the cancer patient rather than to take on her normal role as doctor. Dr. Philippa, thank you for coming to talk to us today. I do really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule and coming to the studio. Um, firstly, how are you now? Um, so this, I don't know when you go out live or not, but this is the beginning of May and I am currently sitting here in an abdominal binder after having surgery mm, coming up to two weeks ago now. So I am fine, um, but I think it's an example of the fact that people often assume that your journey is over when they say that there's no cancer, um, but that your journey doesn't necessarily stop. Yeah, and you were diagnosed in May 2019. In May 2019, I was 39 at the time. Um, and I was an extraordinarily lucky pickup. And whilst it's not lucky to have cancer, it's very lucky that I was discovered when I was because I didn't have the typical signs and symptoms of bowel cancer. And for anybody listening, those are a change in bowel habit. We all have a bowel habit. You might go three times a day. Someone else might go three times a week. Both of those are normal. But if your bowel habit changes and you go from being a three times a day to a three times a week person or vice versa, and that persists for more than three weeks, that needs to be checked out. Any blood in the poo, on the paper, in the bowl, mixed with the poo, and tummy pain, um, lump in the tummy, extreme tiredness and unintentional weight loss. So you're not trying to lose weight, but your clothes are getting bigger. So those are the typical signs. And I didn't have them. Um, and I, my youngest was four when I was diagnosed with bowel cancer. And I have had three cesarean sections. And after my last one, I had some pain in my pelvis. And everybody said, that is from all the scar tissue. You've had lots about, lots of surgery down there because I had had other surgery. Um, and it's just scar tissue pain. And so I didn't really think about it. And it was only a few years later as the pain became more persistent that I thought, okay, I need to do something. And I went to the GP and I said, I think it's this. And she said, yeah, well, I think it's this too. And we went to the gynecologist and the gynecologist said, yeah, I think it's all scar tissue and we can go and get some of that. But just in case your bowel is stuck to your womb 
I'm going to need a bowel surgeon as well. And the bowel surgeon said, well, we should just do a screening colonoscopy just in case. And I remember I was annoyed because I didn't have the day to take off work to do the bowel prep and then another day to take off work to go and have the procedure. And I thought, this is just a waste of time. And then they're all going to say to me, and now we just need to do the keyhole surgery anyway. Um, And so I was a bit grumpy. And I went in and I remember that um, they pushed the sedation um, into the vein. And I lay down on my side, hug your knees in the chest, and there's a camera right in front of you, like a, a screen in front of you. And I opened my eyes and I looked as he put the tube in, the endoscopy tube in. And the cancer was eight centimetres up, so it was there straight away. And I knew exactly what it was. And I turned my head and I looked at the surgeon and the surgeon's eyes came up to meet mine. And I knew straight away. And then it was like the sedation hadn't worked at all. I was very awake. Um, (laughs) But So I was an incredibly lucky pickup because when they then went in to remove part of my bowel, the first time I had other surgeries. Um, it had you got not got not known what you were looking for, you could have done a keyhole surgery, seen a tummy full of scar tissue, which I had, and not gone into the bowel. Wow. So, although it's not lucky, it was a very lucky find, and it could have been an awful lot worse. And that's not to belittle what happened, but things could be different. Mm. So do you feel quite grateful for that early pickup? Um, I feel incredibly grateful to that gynecologist. Um, and I wrote to him from my ICU bed, actually. Um, and he's somebody that was involved in my training um, a long time ago, and he delivered my first baby. And I wrote to him and I said, you know, without you, I, I wouldn't be here. Um, and I saw him a couple of months ago, actually, and burst into tears at him. (laughs) Um, So yes, I do, I feel that it was a very lucky find and I'm grateful for that. But I think that people often assume about cancer that there's some hierarchy of it. That if you have chemo, that it's worse. Or if you have radio, that it's worse. Or if you're in ICU or when we did it in the pandemic. or But actually everybody's experience of cancer is unique and maybe you had a mole removed and... Maybe that was 10 minutes in actually in, in a dermatologist's unit with a bit of local. But when they told you that that was a melanoma, that your whole world sort of rocked. So I don't think that any of this hierarchy stuff makes sense. That everybody has their own experience. But I am grateful that I was found. And now I needed from a very early point, I needed to find something good to hang on to yeah and at what stage in your journey did you open up to the public about your cancer because being fairly high profile in the media I can imagine that was quite difficult Mm. um so not straight away at all um I was diagnosed in May 19 and actually I I had to take six weeks off work after the first surgery and then I worked throughout my chemotherapy um, and then I had to take six weeks off over another surgery or whatever, but I, I worked throughout most of it. Um, and so my patients didn't know either. Um, they knew that I'd had something and that, that was it. And as doctors, we are quite careful about what we give of ourselves. 
Because if you give all of yourself all the time and you tell everything, every everyone everything, then there's nothing left. So we are quite careful. And if you think about your relationship with your GP, you might know that they've got kids the same age or something, but you don't know what's going on with their parents or their lives. And the pandemic was unique in that your doctor was going through the same thing that you were going through, and that changed the dynamic somewhat. Um, but I started writing a diary the day that I got home from that um, diagnosis because I needed to emotionally vomit. And I could not stand being in my own head. It was just too noisy and too much. Um, and so I wrote it out and I wrote it out and I wrote it out and my diary never cried back and um, never had any judgment and never said you can do it and never said anything. It just was the most non-judgmental thing that you could have um, and you can repeat yourself a hundred times and your diary doesn't get bored so I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I had the first edition of the m-word coming out um, and my publisher said to me how are you going to manage the publicity and stuff and I said well I'm just gonna manage mm -hmm. um, and then she said that we were beginning to talk about it and I began to talk about it with my therapist. So I've had therapy since my diagnosis and I'm very open about that. And I realised that I have this platform and I'm very grateful for it and it is a unique space. But I was so lonely throughout my cancer treatment, incredibly lonely, even before the pandemic, because Someone can take you to the doors of the operating theatre, but it's you that lies down on your own. Mm -hmm. And it's you that says over and over and over again, hurt me to make me better. Mm. And you lie there and they access your port and they fill you with cancer poison, right? And you say, do it to me, please. Um, and no one else does that with you. And it's incredibly lonely. And I didn't want other people to feel so lonely and I struggled initially with getting involved in the cancer community because I knew that when you come and see me as a doctor you're mine straight away you're mine right and we have this relationship now where I have part I feel responsible for you and in the cancer community I started to feel responsible for too many people and wanting to fix too many people and needing to say well you could ask for this and you could ask for that and I can't be doctor in that moment I really needed to be patient and so for a while at the beginning I I pulled back from the cancer community in general um but what I realized was how much I could do for that community but also for I guess everyone, one and two of us are going to have cancer. That means everybody knows someone who's affected by cancer. Mm -hmm. And I wanted people to know what not to say, never mind what to say, but what not to say, because there's an awful lot of those. Um, and I am very aware on the television that when I talk about bowel cancer, it takes about three weeks to a month and my DMs get full. And the reason it takes that long is because people then go and see their GP. There's a two-week wait to see the hospital doctor and they get a scope and they tell me when they've got their diagnosis. And then they begin to write to me saying, I saw you on X a month ago and I went because I didn't know that bleeding was this. 
Um, and that's incredible. And we know um, the data shows us really clearly that when, for example, we do a smear on telly, that the number of bookings goes up. Um, and anything that I could do to stop other people being in this position, I feel very responsible to do. So I decided that I would publish it and then absolutely freaked out about it. Um because I write books which are for lay people about health. I don't write books about myself. Um, and an editor has never taken a red pen to my thoughts before. And along came an editor that I had worked with before and I knew very well. And she started crossing out my thoughts or saying, do you think you could expand here or is this in the wrong order I'm like, what do you mean <laughs> those are my thoughts you can't like literally your thoughts are something that you do, you can't control and you're trying to to not change them but edit them um so I found that really difficult and I found going back over it very difficult when I was still in it I'm sure so um it was hard and I was very nervous about it and the response has been absolutely delightful yeah and it's so amazing what you've done for awareness but before you opened up about it I think I read in your book that you were talking about cancer screening programs on the tv or on the radio and specifically about bowel mm. cancer screening programs whilst going through your own bowel cancer journey mm. that must have been so difficult that uh, yes and no because in that moment, I go very much into doctor mode. And to me, doctor mode is a very safe place. It's where I live. Um, and I can do that. And it's some things in medicine you are trained to do over and over and over and over and over, like Pavlov dogs almost, you know, and you think, oh, gosh, it's time to do my basic life support again. Um, but you need to do those things so often that when the time comes to do it, there is no, th I mean, there's obviously thought, but that it, it's an automatic response. Um, and so for me to slide into doctor um, was okay. It's when I allowed patient in, when I allowed me in, that I struggled with it. Yeah. And in your book, you talked about having a wall. Yeah. And how as a doctor, you need that wall. And I think you said to protect your heart and protect your soul. And then when you got diagnosed, the wall went up even further. Yeah. And that's to obviously protect yourself from the ramifications of having cancer. But is that wall still up? And if so, how have you dealt with the emotions surrounding your diagnosis? Um, it depends on the day, I guess. Um, so the, the wall is not necessarily a bad thing. People think doctors are hard or that doctors aren't caring. Doctors, they care too much. You know, we're empaths most of the time um, and we are very aware of what we call the transference so the feeling that we get from you so if you come in and then I feel quite edgy afterwards I've picked up on a tiny bit of your anxiety or irritability or whatever it is and if that tiny bit that I now feel is amplified in you and um, you know it gives me an understanding of what what's happening to you and that's a very psychotherapeutic term and then the countertransference is that is the idea of what you get back from me um so the wall is is important in the same way that you don't go to work in your pajamas and that people at work they call me doctor and all of that is part of the wall um and i think that when physically you are flawed Sometimes you work harder to protect that wall and sometimes it's just all, it's all out there and you have to rebuild it 
brick by brick. Um, and therapy has been my safe space and my saviour for a long time now. Um, and it's not that we all don't sort of therapize that's not a word counsel each other we do you know you give your friends counsel and your family counsel all the time um but a therapist does not show their emotional reaction and does not tell you what to do they allow you to come to your own feelings about it and i really struggled and i still struggle with people telling me how strong i am how brave i am um, people telling me only four more chemos, only one more chemo, only one more surgery. I've been told only one more surgery for about eight surgeries. Um, people who are so desperate for you to be well and are so hurt by the pain that you have that they can't bear it. Mm. And so they try and make it better. And they try and make it better by telling you to be better. But what I need what I needed was to marinate in the shit a little bit and I needed you to sit with me in it and most people can't yeah and a therapist often can and so when people say oh you know you're positive I'm not positive I am pissed a lot and I am grumpy and I went to chemo stomping um, and dragging my feet, but I went anyway. And people really struggle with the idea of more than one thing being true at once, but more than one thing is often true at once, and feelings aren't black and white, they're grey, and you have feelings and, not feelings or. So you can be brave and terrified, and you can know that you're going anyway and be stoic and be hugely angry about it or be really fed up about it. And often people really struggle with the dichotomy of that. But you aren't or, you are and. It's that comment, isn't it? You'll, you'll be okay. Because you actually, you might not be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what would have helped me is someone saying, I hear that you're afraid. Mm. In fact, that still would help me. I hear that you are afraid and I can't tell you it's going to be okay. But I can tell you that I'm here. Yeah. And it's really hard for people to do it. And as a doctor, my job has always been to try and fix. And I might try and fix with medicine or with therapy or with surgery or with me. Often, you know, doctor is medicine, often. Um, but cancer has really changed how I do that. And I know the exact moment that it changed. And that was in ICU after my first surgery where things were going not well. And um, I would look at my own heart monitor and think, someone's coming now. I mean, in ICU, you have a nurse with you the whole time. But you know, the doctor's coming now, they've already called. And I know that I need X, Y, and Z. Um, and the patient part of me would think, oh, I'm going to die now. Um, and a doctor came in about two or three in the morning and he looked at the monitor and he sat down on the bed and he held my hand and he said, you're having a really shit time. And I don't know how long that lasted, but I know, and it couldn't have been long because he had to do what he had to do, but that was the time when in that just moment of human connection that I felt seen. 
And so now when my patients, see, it always makes me upset, um, when my patients are going through something and often they won't look at you and their eyes go down and their head goes down as they're talking about it. And I say, I see how bad it is. I see how hard it is. I see you. And their heads come up and their eyes meet yours and you think that's the, that's what I did for that person today because I can't always make it better. Yeah. So has your cancer experience changed you significantly as a doctor? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's how that would be what I think the difference is. Um, I think the being in the public profile is slightly strange still um, because patients know this piece of information about me and they will say but what happened to you or you know I suppose about the fact that chemotherapy put me in a premature menopause and they say but what are you on but what I'm on and what my treatment is is not what necessarily what you need so I can't people are saying sort of what would you do with the understanding that I have and it's like it's not what I would do it's what would I do in your situation and anyway it's not about what I think it's about what you think and after I've given you enough information to try and make those choices and decisions yourself um so it is odd that people sort of know something about me in that in that way um but I think I hope that more good has come out of it than not and have you had patients um, with the same vulnerabilities, the same fears as you, the same diagnoses as you? I don't think you need the same diagnosis as me to have the same fear as me. Yeah. I think. But have you had the situation where you're sitting as a doctor and you're yeah. thinking, oh my God, th- this is hard because yeah. this is me. And, but that's not the first time because I had recurrent miscarriage and, and you know, when people come would come in with miscarriage um or whatever else. It's the times when you identify with someone, and often that would be a young mother with young children. Um, And I was literally just thinking about this today, of thinking, when your doctor cries as a patient, what do you think? Um, And Do you often cry then? Not often, not often. (laughs) Um, But when I was a junior, there was a sort of leave the ward. And every junior I've ever met would say there was a time where they went and cried in the toilet. Um, And I worked in oncology and we did, you know, we did astounding stuff like a woman got married on New Year's Eve and she died the next day and we did it in the ward, you know, and we did this, this stuff that was, was both heartwarming and heartbreaking. Um, And that you would leave sometimes the ward round and take a minute. Um, and then in GP land, it's different because in GP land, I know you and I know you for years and I might know your family and I know where you live. And sometimes I look after generations of people. And so that relationship is different. Um, and, and that's the joy of general practice and what I hope can still be maintained in general practice is getting a lot harder. Um, but, you know, people for longer, so they touch you in very different ways and when I first started as a GP reg I used to say to my trainer but what happens I can't excuse myself I can't because you're in a one-on-one situation it's not like you're in a little group of doctors you know mm-hmm. and a whole ward um and she said well you know we we can talk about that what is it that, that you think and sometimes depending on how well I knew them or not I would say something like oh don't worry about me when people cry um 
I, I feel that too. My eyes are just leaking. Ignore me, carry on. This is about you, not about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I will often say something like that. And I wonder, and I still wonder, does it make people think my doctor is human? Mm-hmm. Or does it make patients worry about me because I don't want them to be worrying about me at that moment? I think the majority, personally, I think the majority of patients would feel my doctor is human and, and they get me. They understand, they're empathising with me. But well, I, no one's ever complained. <laughs> but, <laughs> exactly. no, no. And um, it's making it sound that it happens a lot. It doesn't happen a lot. Um, but, but when it happens, I actually think as a doctor, it's quite important to take a moment and think, why? why? What is it about that that has got in, that has got through? In the same way that when you start off as a, as a doctor, you, you think a lot and ruminate a lot about cases. And the more experience that you have... The ones that you're thinking about at home are the ones where something bad is happening or you're missing something. And you learn to look and think, oh, this person came up, just keeps coming up in my head. Something else is going on. Let me go and talk to another doctor about it or, or whatever. Um, and I think so. I think it's really important to be aware. What is it about that person that triggered something in me? Yeah. And do you think doctors in this country are prepared enough no. with how to deal emotionally. You don't even need to finish the sentence, yeah. no. Yeah. Um, absolutely not. There is no psychological support throughout your training. Um, there is no psychological support. Is that still the case? Because yeah. I know we, admit, so I trained as a physiotherapist and I know as a physiotherapist, you know, we're, we're on the wards, we're yep. seeing death as well yep. and difficult scenarios. I trained 15 years ago or over 15 years ago. We had nothing. Yep. So I don't um, know if it's changed though. There are, there, there is things, there's something called the practitioner health program, which that you can be referred into, but there isn't a, when psychotherapists train, they have to go into psychotherapy. And the only job out of all my jobs and training where I had to have some kind of counseling was when I did psychiatry. And so for six months, I saw somebody once a week and that was part of the training aside from that no I was 24 and on my first day I was I remember my first call everybody remembers their first crash call um I remember thinking would it be better if I hide in the toilet um (laughs) and my SHO so at the time we were what's called PRHO so that was the most junior doctor which is now the foundation doctor and then my SHO which is now an ST doctor and he looked at me and there was this sort of thought of oh um and he went come on let's go and we bolted down the corridor at St Thomas's Hospital to the psychiatric unit um and I remember exactly what happened in that first crash call um and afterwards the registrar went all right and I went all right (laughs) and that was that um but actually what happened was pretty traumatic um and we are exposed to situations where it's very clear that there are many situations which are worse than death. And all doctors will tell you that there are situations which are worse than death. Um, And you're often on your own and you're young um, and you are exposed to all kinds of things and you are exposed to the best of people and the worst of people and you find your way, um, but there really does need to be more support um, for doctors and an understanding of the humanity of doctors um, because you can't absorb everything mm. but 
I know very clearly that when Adam Kay's book came out, his first book about his time in Obsangaini, I read the book and a box... This is going to hurt. Yes, and a box got unlocked in my head. A box about cases that I had seen on the Labour Ward. And the Labour Ward, do you remember the advert? I think it was for the World... No, for the FA Cup or something. And it said, heaven and hell is the same place. And it was someone on their knees holding up a cup and someone on their knees with their head in their hands on the two opposing teams. And in Labour Ward, is that's the same. On Labour Ward, heaven and hell are the same place. Mm-hmm. Either it's okay or it's bad. Yeah. And... Um, when I read that book, the box got opened and I dreamt of patients and scenarios that I hadn't thought about in a long time. Mm. And very clearly I had put them in a box. And it's not that I was spending all my time sitting on that box, but reading that book opened the box and I couldn't watch the programme. Really? Yeah. Um, And eventually I did, but sort of in a prepared way thinking I know that the box is open mm-hmm. as opposed to it coming up to you um so I think I think that doctors definitely need more support um all healthcare professionals do there's no money for anything yeah it's a, I mean but we don't want all doctors having to go through the traumatic things like that you've had to go through to better you as a doctor well actually I'm not saying you weren't a good doctor beforehand either (laughs) (laughs) but sometimes going through that and you know you become more self-reflective and you maybe do become more empathetic or or your wall goes up yeah and a bit of both has to happen a bit of both has to happen you don't do chest compressions on a little old lady and feel their ribs breaking and think about it at the time Mm don't you have to have your wall up yeah um you have to know when to lower that wall as well yeah and that's the tricky bit yes we've all seen doctors who don't lower that wall at all you know and don't understand what it is from the patient's side Mm -hmm. um and i think i think that the balance is very difficult and i think that that people often talk about groups of doctors as one way or another and they say oh the peds doctors are nice but the surgeons aren't and you think well it takes a lot of guts to put a knife to someone and say, I'm going to use this knife to make you better. And so I want the person cutting me to be the best cutter. And if they are a bit arrogant, maybe they have to be in some way. Mm. And I know that I can get the rest from somewhere else, but not every patient can. Um, and, and it's very different. The balance is very difficult. Yeah. I Absolutely. Um, Talking about therapy Mm -hmm. and something else I want to talk to you about from your memoir is you write about your psychotherapy and how she highlighted. And one of the things she highlighted was that you are not good at self and you are a giver and you see yourself as a mum, a doctor, a daughter, a sister, a friend. And I wondered where you are at with that now because I I had another um, guest on this podcast the Paralympic gold medalist David Smith who Mm. said the same thing and he said his psychologist had advised him not that he's not an athlete he just does sport because when he had his spinal tumor and he couldn't do sport anymore the mental health implications of that were so so great so I wondered where you were at well, so I've had a lot of therapy now. Um, <laughs> and sometimes it feels like um, you're not anywhere. And sometimes it feels like you've you've made progress. Um, and I have made a lot of progress. Um, 
I understand from an academic level it's not my fault. Um, I still feel sad when my kids are affected, um, but it's not my fault. Did you think it was your fault at one point? I felt that it was my fault. Yeah. Were you able to rationalise that? Was that a totally irrational thought? Um, so I'm, I'm, my defence mechanism will always be to go academic because that's where I feel comfortable. So I would say on an intellectual level, I will understand that I didn't ask for cancer and I didn't smoke and I didn't drink and I didn't, you know, and I exercise and I didn't eat a load of processed meat or whatever it is for bowel cancer. Um, and then they would say, well, actually now we found a gene. And, and they would say, oh, it's not your fault. I said, like, what do you mean? It's my genes my genes that I might have passed on to my child um so it's definitely my fault it isn't I didn't ask for it it isn't my fault um so I would I understood intellectually but I still really felt guilty about it um and that flares up actually um and and I have to well, I know that when something's flowing up, when I spend a lot of time in my head telling myself it's not your fault, it's different this time, or whatever it is. Um, I am much better now at understanding the core of me um, and that I am enough. I never thought that I was enough. I never thought that I was good enough. Um, and perfect is not something to, to aim for actually because you're always going to fail good enough is fine um but the pandemic and having a huge surgery in the pandemic I was in ICU for 10 days on my own I was in hospital for 15 days on my own in the pandemic and it showed me that I am strong enough and I can I just don't want to and so when I had this surgery for example it's very triggering obviously and it was never that I thought that I couldn't do it I know I can that's the bit that I've learned I know that I am enough and I know somewhere very down deep that I'm enough I just don't want to be enough and that's the bit that I'm struggling with I don't want to still have to um, be strong or be whatever because when you are physically hurt, you hurt mentally and you don't feel strong at all. You feel weak. And people telling you how strong you are isn't very useful. Um, so I have a better understanding of self. But myself is often still defined by not necessarily what I do, but who I am. So I am a doctor, which is a very core part of my being. And I worked really hard for cancer to not take it away because it comes for everything. And I wasn't going to let it take it, take it. But what is the core of being a doctor? Well, that's caring for other people and you can do that in lots of ways. Um, and so trying to think about those kind of things. Um, but cancer comes for your body, but really it affects your mind. And when your body heals the mind takes an awful lot longer mm. to heal. And when you're really unwell, you don't have any energy to do that because everything that you have subconsciously is focused on getting better. Um, and so when I look back at my time in ICU the second time, I don't remember thinking very much at all. I remember thinking, get this tube out of my nose. I'm just continually vomiting. Um, but I don't remember thinking very much about about lots of things, mm. um, apart from there are particular moments that are very much stuck in my head. Um, but 
there was no space to think because I was too sick to think, mm. if that makes sense. And then or it's you've only blocked it out you, as well. Yeah, but all it's only as you get better that there is time and space to begin to heal from a head point of view. Yeah. So you've spent a lot of time on healing psychologically as well as physically. I think that that everybody does. They may not just be quite as aware of it. And I know I have to be very aware of it because I have to make the time for it because my jobs are such that I go back to back to back to back um, and I have to be very careful about it. So... I know that when my oncologist said to me, if you exercise regularly, you will decrease your risk of cancer recurring recurring, and a new one because my genes haven't changed. So I still have a double risk of getting a new bowel cancer mm-hmm. um, as much as chemo will. And I thought, well, I'm about to start six months of chemotherapy and you're telling me that I can get the same again by exercising. And so now the 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 angel and the demon sitting on my shoulder they're no longer there i just i just i do that mm-hmm. i just exercise and it helps me stay sane because it helps me say but you're still doing everything that you can yeah. to not be in this position again um and i n- know that and i know various other things that i need in order to be a good mother and a good doctor um and so you know you have to do you have to do those things and those things aren't selfish they're necessary yeah essentially we can't look after the people around us if we don't look after us yeah. as number doctors one. are really not taught that doctors are only taught about presenteeism um and if you aren't there then the roach is going to fall apart um and you know or someone else has to cover for you and doctors go in sick and we go in before we should and i still do that um but i'm getting a bit better it's a process (laughs) so do you see this is a hard one but do you see the positives that cancer has brought yet um i see it's funny i almost can't quite remember before i know there was a before um obviously there was a before but i can't quite remember and imagine it if that makes sense and that's because we don't talk about the impact of being a survivor um, and survivorship if one of two of us are going to have cancer more and more of us are living with cancer um, or are surviving cancer but we don't talk about lymphedema from breast cancer surgery or premature menopause and infertility from chemotherapy or radiotherapy we don't talk about the mental health issues and the ongoing fatigue we don't talk about low anterior resection syndrome i only have half a bowel now I can't queue for the toilet um, and how sometimes I can't get out of the toilet, how my diet is entirely changed and I still get a third of, third to a quarter of my diet from supplements. Um, not like you know vitamin supplements, actual calorie supplements yeah. because I cannot eat the volume of food that I need to eat and how that impacts every decision when people go, let's go out or you're out for the day and everyone else is grabbing a sandwich and I'm still taking something with me um you know and we don't talk about those kind of issues which are lifelong or nerve damage from chemotherapy or whatever it is um and for me that's something that definitely needs to be talked about a lot more um would you like everyone around you to know that about you then 
No, I want the people who I want to know mm. to take it into consideration, but I don't want them to tell me about it and I don't want to make them to make it too obvious. Yeah, it's exactly. very confusing. Because I don't want to talk about that. Do you know what I mean? I want to still be that strong person. So I would like someone to not say something stupid and they do all the time because it's not part of their lives and so they don't think about it so when they say they look at my plate at a dinner or you know a function and they go oh you're on a diet oh no but you look really good you lost loads of weight when you had chemo and I think <laughs> well a don't comment on anybody's body b losing weight because you're on chemo and are sick is not a good thing and see you're trying to be nice but it just shows that you don't think about what's happened to me um and so I struggle with that kind of thing um I see that cancer has changed me and I accept that Mm -hmm. and I think that that's huge because to get to acceptance you have to go through all the other feelings and I don't think that you have to be positive about things all the time but acceptance is some level of peace mm. um and I think that that is valuable um I would love to answer that question in five years when maybe I'm out of it yeah interesting you say that because I had a, a guy on the podcast last week um, who had leukemia eight years ago and he was an example of someone who said basically how pleased he was he had cancer because he is he feels he is a better person now and how it has enriched his life and I at the time said ask me that question in five years <laughs> and I laughed at the time I said you know I'm laughing thinking about the fact that you see it as a positive thing so maybe you're right maybe time I think time we as GPs we use time all the time um and we say come back in a week if it's not better right and we say so we use time as medicine um, and it's not concrete but it does make a difference because your life expands around what's happened to you yeah and in this podcast we do talk about resilience yeah do you see yourself as a resilient person now I do um did you not before not sure I'd even really thought about it before I before I knew I before I relied on things like academics and things where I felt comfortable um and you know I would work hard to be a good doctor I still work hard to be a good doctor you know we we learn all the time um but I don't think that I realised at all that cancer is like getting punched in the face and standing up and getting punched in the face, falling down, standing up, getting punched in the face, falling down, standing up, over and over and over and over again. And I no longer think I'm going to get punched and fall down. I think I know I can get back up. Um, but again, I don't always want to. <laughs> um, so I think that I think that it has shown me about my internal resilience um, a lot more. So there's a positive that's come out of cancer. No, there are lots of positives, I think, that have come out of cancer, including the opportunities to help many more people, which is a core part of of my being um, as such. So I think that there there are positives, and I think that my children and I, that's where I sort of will, as a mum, that's where my focus often goes. And I can even see with them, my children are empathetic. 
my children have shown me how resilient they are they are caring i it's just still hard to balance the fact that they have to be yeah of course but do you think you take that resilience into other aspects of your life so not just your health but you know your work life your social life um i think that in some aspects of all you know doctors are pretty resilient in general Mm -hmm. um but i think that i think that if it's made me a better doctor it's made me a better friend it's made me a better lots of things because you've had an experience that other people haven't um I think that cancer changes you and I think that the idea of going back to before is never going to happen and I think that's really hard to hear. You go to a new normal, a new version of you and you can like that version and be happy with that version but it's not the same Yeah, and that's okay. They talk about it as a loss, don't they? Yeah, and but you have to grieve a loss and you have to be allowed to grieve a loss and that's the thing that other people struggle with yeah but that's why i was asking you about your wall your emotional wall because you know the, the great dr edith egar says you can't heal what you don't feel yes oh no so so the wall the i would say that that my wall is made of lego in that it comes <laughs> up and down yeah um and that's okay yeah and that's important yeah but sometimes that you need people who don't love you in order for the wall to be down because you're always aware with your friends and your family or I am of the impact on them and the doctor in me never wanted to still doesn't want to hurt them Um, and that balance of allowing them to help and allowing them to see but not but then that balance is still very difficult, actually. Um, And so sometimes you're most vulnerable. It can be easier to be with someone who doesn't know you at all. But I think that what I wanted more than anything and the pandemic took away was the choice. And knowing that you're going to wake up and not have anyone there, that choice was taken from me. And when I walked into the surgery, so I have this thing where I walk physically into surgery because the first time um, they came with the trolley and my surgeon was still there because I was going to have to spend about an hour in the anaesthetic room having tubes and epidurals and spinals and whatever else. And um, he said, no, Philippa, we walk in so that we walk out. Obviously, you don't walk out of the surgery, (laughs) but as in walk out of the hospital. And... That was a, you know, a blithe sentence that he's never thought about since. And I have carried around, <laughs> you know, inscribed on my heart. Yeah. You walk in to walk out. So now I always, always walk in. Um, and at one big one, I walked in and I knew I was going to be on my own. And the ODP, who's the uh, anaesthetic assistant, was someone who was the anaesthetic assistant on the on a previous surgery and I said to him I'm really sorry I don't know your name but I recognize you and he said yes Philippa I was here in whatever date and you had blah 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 and that was me and I said to him please can I hold your hand and he held my hand and when I woke up he was holding my hand um I don't remember his name (laughs) but I remember him 
and so sometimes you, you know the balance of needing that, that that choice was taken from me I would have wanted that hand to be held by my mum or my husband you know but you still need someone <laughs> so you find you find a way and what I think the mental switch that came to me was it wasn't broken I found a way anyway, right? I found a way around. And so when I would feel my body is broken or my bowel is broken, no, I'm finding a way around. Mm. So it's not that I'm broken. Mm. It's that I'm managing. And so you are resilient, very resilient. <laughs> Which um, strategies do you think you've used to get you to where you are today? So we've talked about psychotherapy. You've talked about writing because obviously yeah. your memoir. Any other specific strategies which have really helped you? So exercise yeah. keeps me sane. Yeah. Um, anything that gets you out of your head and into your body. So often that's being outside nature. For me, the mountains are a very special place. Um, or by water or whatever, somewhere where you are focused on what is happening to your body, not what is happening in your head. Yeah, I can fully agree. The mountains for me is like unbelievable. <laughs> it was, so it was an aim for me to crawl to if that makes sense <laughs> um but but yes so being outside often rather like a baby when they're crying you take them outside and they stop crying yeah amazing look at this look at the clouds yeah <laughs> um final question if you could go back in time to when things were their toughest what do you wish you could have told yourself i have one regret in my life and that regret is not about the toughest time that regret is that in those few years when I had intermittent on and off bit of aching around my scars mm. that I didn't say no it's not scar tissue because all bowel cancer grows from a benign polyp um, and you can just take out a polyp put a colonoscopy and you know, never thought about it again um, and it's a silly regret because I can't go back and change it um, but that would be what I would do and change if I could go back to what at the worst time what would I say? Probably nothing. Just sit and hold my own hand. Yeah. Because you can't say anything. And that's what was missing in the pandemic, was that I had to hold my own hand. Yeah, yeah that was hard. Yeah. <laughs> Where can people find you if they want to know more? Um, so you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Philippa K, one L, two Ps. Um, and all my books are available at Amazon, Waterstones and anywhere else that you buy books. Thank you, Dr. Philippa. Thank you for your honesty, your vulnerability and sharing your story and for sharing it so widely as well. Um, I think I really feel that books like yours and sharing, you know, like we talked about awareness enables more people to get diagnosed early and we know the importance of early detection. Please keep writing your fabulous books. Ah. <laughs> they are very readable and they really do help the layperson to understand these crazy medical concepts. Um, thank so thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you.